You're listening to Blackpool Church Podcast. Join us for our Sunday gatherings to make friends, explore faith and encounter God. Visit our website, blackpool.church. This is the Talk Archive. We are continuing our series, which is called Renew. And this series is all about evangelism, how we can share with other people the good news of Jesus, and how, as a church, we can be ready for the renewal that comes when the Holy Spirit fills his people. And the topic that I've given this, the title that I've given this talk is The Church Isn't Good Enough. The Church Isn't Good Enough. And um, I think this is an important topic for us to think about when it comes to evangelism for two reasons, really. Uh, The first reason is that I think our our prayers, when we bring before God the need for our community to be renewed by his Holy Spirit, that comes from a place of dissatisfaction. Comes from a place of sort of looking at what we see and thinking, it's amazing. Thank you, God, for everything that you're doing, but it's not enough. We want to see more. Like, where, where are the 139,000 other people in Blackpool who won't be part of the church's family? And so there's a sense of, like, it's not good enough because we're dissatisfied, because we're hungry for more. We want to see more of God's Holy Spirit at work in our church. James Dyson, the inventor of the Dyson vacuum cleaner, says this, Frustration is a catalyst for better invention. It's something I instill in the engineers we have at Dyson today. You have to experience frustration and understand, and understand the problem in order to solve it. And so that's the first reason we want to talk about the church not being good enough, because we need to be frustrated by it and understand the problem in order to change it. Now, the second reason that I think we need to talk about this topic of the church's failures when it comes to evangelism is because the church's failures... Uh, is a massive barrier to many people coming to know Jesus. The, the way their experiences, people's previous experiences of being hurt by the church is a massive barrier for many thousands of people in our nation coming to know Jesus. Um, just yesterday, I met another person who had been forced into um, services and very strict religious rules in a Christian school as a child, and as a result, that wants to have nothing to do with the church. I'm sure you've met many people like that. And so we need to talk about some of our uh, issues as a church and hold up our hands to those things so that we can be willing to change. Uh, So what we're going to do is we're going to look at a passage from Matthew's Gospel. It's in Matthew 23. If you've got a Bible with you, um, you can grab that. Also, it might be the kind of talk that you want to take a few notes. I'm going to do a few lists, and you'll probably forget them by the time I get to the end of it. So if you want to take any notes down or anything, um, then grab your phone or, or I mean, I don't know, a notepad or something, if you want to do that, if you've got one. Um, Matthew 23, 37 to 39. And picture the scene. Jesus is stood on a hill, and I imagine maybe he's looking over a wall, and he's looking down the hill. And down in front of him in the distance is the city of Jerusalem. It's close enough that you can just about see a few people, but far enough away that you couldn't hear what they were saying. 
And he looks over and surveys that city in the distance. And he says this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings? And you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I remember a couple of years ago interviewing one of our wonderful staff members at this church. And she's not here today, so um, she's on holiday, so won't be embarrassed by this story. But I remember asking her about her sense of calling to the job. Like, why would you want to leave your flat and quit your job and move hundreds of miles to this random town in the north of England that you've not really been to particularly before? Why would you want to do that? And as we chatted, she told me that growing up as a Christian teenager in a little town in the north of England, she'd had an experience, and that was that... um, she was basically outnumbered effectively. She looked around at her church and just didn't really see anybody her age. And what's more, it felt like the church wouldn't really be well catered to people her age either. And um, she summarized it like this, I just wanted a church I could invite my friends to. That's fair enough, isn't it? Who wouldn't want a church that you can invite your friends to? I hope we can make this into a church that people want to invite their friends to right? And so that's what she said. Now, obviously, that's no criticism of her previous church. It's very hard to lead a church that's great for teenagers, as well as children, as well as older folks, etc. But it's like a deep sense of dissatisfaction that sat in her so that 15 years or so later, she was still like burdened by that to the point that she would leave a really nice flat and quit a job and move hundreds of miles to the north of England to help serve this church in the hope that we could make it a place where young people felt like they could invite their friends to it. And credit to her for that. And I suspect she's not alone in noticing things in the church that need to keep on improving, keep on growing, keep on developing. And when we see things that need to change in in the church or in the world or in ourselves, I think there are a few different options that we could go for. And so the first option might be denial. When we're talking about the church, this is the, this is the one for the church leaders. Denial, right? What are you talking about? It's fine as far as I'm concerned. I've not noticed any problems particularly, so uh, let's just kind of head in the sand. No problem. Don't talk to me about it. I know Jesus said you'll have trouble in the world. He also said he'd overcome it though, so you know, it's probably fine. That's the option of denial. And we can do this in a sort of mental way. We can try to genuinely convince ourselves that nothing is wrong. That's quite difficult. Or we can do it in a practical way. We could try and just isolate ourselves from anything that's, that's difficult or wrong that needs to change. And maybe we could just sort of run away from things that need to change to isolate us, ourselves from them. It's not the way of Jesus, though. The second option we could go for, I've called pessimism. We could potentially call it defeatism if we want. This 
um, option. It acknowledges that there are things that need to change, but it says they can't be changed. It won't happen. And again, maybe there are a couple of different ways that we could do it. We could do it in a passive way. We could just say, I give up. Can't do it. Don't have the resources that I need. Don't have, I'm not good enough, whatever it is. And we could just say, I give up, basically. Or we could do it in a bit more of an active way, and we might become cynical. And so we could sort of say, well, nothing ever changes. Or we've tried this, and it didn't work. Been there, done that, got the T-shirt, etc. We could say that people are probably in it for themselves, and so even if we did do the right thing to change it, it wouldn't work because we're up against something worse than ourselves. And cynicism, it's sometimes really clever, and it's sometimes very funny, but it's not ultimately a very attractive characteristic. Cynics often think the worst of people, and so they don't get to benefit from trust. Proverbs 29 says, Mockers stir up a city, but the wise turn away anger. It's very easy to get in the habit of complaining, isn't it? And you can make a lot of friends complaining because it's quite a popular thing to do. And so then you can do it together. But complaining is not a gift of the Holy Spirit. But encouragement is a gift of the Holy Spirit. And so it's not the way of Jesus. Third option we could take on would be indifference. We could just try and say, I don't really care that things need to change. It doesn't really bother me. It's not particularly, I don't know, like other people can worry about that if they want to see lots of people come to know Jesus, if they want to see people not get hurt in the church, that's great for them, but it doesn't really matter to me particularly. And sometimes this is a really natural reaction because needs often become overwhelming. If you look at our town, for instance, if you start to get involved in trying to help and support people in our town, you might quite quickly become overwhelmed because there's so many needs. And what happens when, when we do that is eventually we start to try and put up a defense mechanism of indifference, where we basically say, we've got compassion fatigue, I can't really do caring anymore, and so I'll just be indifferent. It's a really natural response, but it's not the way of Jesus. The fourth bad option I could think of is perfectionism. And uh, this is another tempting one. One of my uh, great theological heroes is John Calvin. And uh, he was an amazing writer, brilliant mind, very um, courageous Christian who basically recognized lots of the evils of the church as it was and the corruption of many priests. And he decided that that needed to be fixed. So along with others, he started to stand up for the need for the church to reclaim the, the Bible and start to take it seriously and live in the way of Jesus. And um, one of the things he was very concerned about as well was that uh, Geneva, where he was based, was pretty morally corrupt, right? They'd gone a bit off. And he thought that was bad and that people should live like good Christians, which they should. So he started putting in place rules and using his influence to get laws put in place so that people would do what they should be doing But the problem is it's very hard to outlaw bad behavior. And so the rules had to get stricter and stricter and stricter and stricter, trying to get towards this state of perfection. And, I mean, it got got pretty out of hand, to be honest. Like, it got to the point that they'd even outlawed dancing because, you know, 
well, you, never t- you can't be too careful with people who dance, right? We all know that. And so they'd, they'd outlawed it. Um, and that's crazy when you think about it because this guy knows his Bible. He wrote some of the best stuff I've ever read on Christian doctrine. And there's so much dancing in the Bible. But he kind of lost his way somewhere along the line chasing perfectionism. And throughout history, lots of other people have pursued really good causes, but by bad practice. And maybe we know that today as well, that we might see people who are pursuing really great causes around climate change or equality or whatever it is, but have got fanatical and obsessed about it so that only perfection will do. It's really tempting, it's really natural, but it's not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus, I think, is what we could describe as holy discontent. That's what people often turn it, um, term it. And it's like a good frustration. There are lots of times in the gospel when Jesus sees things that aren't right and he's angry or he's grieved or he's frustrated. And his anger, his frustration, his discontent, it doesn't fall into those dangers that I've laid out before. Instead, I think there are two things that describe Jesus's holy discontent. The first is honesty. Jesus is incredibly honest, like painfully honest. A couple of verses earlier, uh, before the, the reading I read you, he's talking to the Pharisees, these guys who are causing lots of the problems, and he says this, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Right? Anyone got that memory verse tattooed? No, didn't think so. Bookmark or something, floral bookmark with that one? No, no. But Jesus is painfully honest, isn't he? He just absolutely names it how it is, and he's willing to stand up for what he believes to be right. I've been practicing this recently, actually, a little bit. So I don't know, if anyone wants a little chat afterwards or something, just let me know. And uh, really happy to give some home truths or whatever it is that you need. I'm having a go. In our reading, Jesus says, um, look, your house is left to you desolate. And um, it's an accusation of hypocrisy. What he's saying is that the house looks good, but inside there's nothing. And it's like how sometimes people look pretty good on the outside, but inside everything's not the way it's meant to be. Jesus recognizes that's a real problem. It's a real problem, particularly for religious leaders who he's talking to. And so he builds up um, seven woes, the seven woes of the Pharisees. And there are seven because in the Bible, the number seven is the number of completeness. So he's kind of saying, like, I just got to be really honest with you guys. You're like completely corrupt. And he just names it for how it is because he's honest. But Jesus' holy discontent is also marked by hope, I think. He's not just a complainer, like we talked about before. Um, Jesus talks about the things that makes him angry, but then he ends like this. You know, he's listed this massive thing, total character assassination. And then he says, For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now the question is, when are they going to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? And we might think, ah, Palm Sunday, right? 
Jesus coming into Jerusalem. Crowds are there, and they all say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But it's not Palm Sunday, because Palm Sunday has already happened two chapters earlier. So Jesus can't be talking about that. Instead, what he's doing is he's quoting. He's quoting a psalm. It's Psalm 118. And this psalm is like one of the most upbeat psalms in the whole book. Like it's really going for it. It's like, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. You are my God and I will praise you. You're my God and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. And so Jesus is laying out all these issues, all these things that he thinks are wrong. And then it's like he just bursts out into like the most joyful, upbeat worship song in the first century that's going. This is an absolute banger, basically. It's like, House of the Lord with Sam on drums and track and everything. It's like really like excitable. It's a joyful phrase that he gives them. And what he's doing is he's prophesying his own return. He's saying like even despite all of these things, even despite you guys being absolutely and utterly corrupt, there is a day when I will come and you will say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Ultimately, Jesus can right every wrong, and he will right every single wrong. There is nothing that we see around us in the world that Jesus is not able to put right, ultimately. And there is a day when he will do that. And so he gives it to them as like a message of hope at the end of this passage of honesty. And so the key for us when we see things around us that are broken, is we need to try and hold those two things together. We need to hold honesty and hope. Uh, So let's have a little look at how this might play out in the church, particularly. And and we should talk about church hurt, basically. Um, Now, I love leading this church. It's an absolute privilege. It's like one of the best things. And every day I come into work pretty much excited about the things that I get to do. It's just so It's joyful. It's wonderful. But I've noticed that this church isn't perfect. You might not have noticed that, but I have noticed that it's not perfect, right? And um, you might be here for the first time today. You might have only been here for half an hour or something like that. And I hope if you've only been here for half an hour, you've not experienced anything particularly painful in our church. But I can't can't guarantee it. But I hope that's the case. Um, If you've been here for a little while then I suspect you've started to notice things that kind of rub up on you or things that you think, hmm, that doesn't quite feel right. That shouldn't necessarily be like that. Why do they do that? Or maybe there were things that you used to like that then got changed. So you think, why has that been changed? Why can't that go back to the way it was? I know for a fact that there are quite a few of us here today who have been badly hurt by the church. Not necessarily this church, but the church in general, in different ways, has hurt you. And this year, we've seen a number of revelations, particularly about church leaders who have like, catastrophically failed to live up to the way of Jesus. Think about uh, many of us who might have been to Soul Survivor Festivals, who were just absolutely horrified to see some of the revelations about Mike Pilavachi, who led those festivals that have come out recently. Those of us who sing Hillsong songs will have been horrified by some of the revelations about their pastors in New York and Sydney. For me, really personally, I just think 
this year has been a really disappointing year when I think about some of the bishops of the Church of England and the ways in which uh, the College of Bishops have tried to change some of the church's core teaching around marriage and do it without approaching that properly and following the proper systems. And that's so disappointing. And like, for what it's worth, our bishops in Lancashire, praise God for them, have very courageously stood up and, and called that out. But it's disappointing to see leaders who let us down. Some of us have probably been in churches where people have had affairs or where church leaders have bullied people. Some of us have been part of churches where people have been exclusionary or manipulative. Some of us have had to listen to bad teaching where people have either discredited the Bible or have used it for their own ends. And all of these things lead to an enormous amount of pain. And so the question is, well, why? Why why? That shouldn't be the way, should it? Presumably, if everybody's here trying to be filled with the Holy Spirit, trying to live as Jesus lived, should be a remarkably pain-free place, you would have thought. Um, My friend Alex has three reasons, which I think are really spot on, so I've stolen them, as to why why church hurt happens. And the first one is that sometimes we're hurt by people in the church because the people hurting us just, they're not Christians, and so they're not living like Jesus. It's worth reminding ourselves that coming to church doesn't make you a Christian, right? And there there are some of us here who might quite openly say, well, I'm not a Christian. I'm just coming to explore. Coming to church doesn't make you a Christian. And actually being really involved in the church or even leading a church doesn't make you a Christian. Believing in God, praying, reading your Bible does not make you a Christian. The only thing that makes you a Christian is devoting your life to being a follower of Jesus. That is it. That's the only way to be a Christian. And so sometimes things happen in the church where people are hurt because people just aren't, aren't Christians and they're not trying to be. They're not living the way of Jesus. And people get hurt sometimes because of that. The Bible uh, describes it like this in the book of Titus. It says, they claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. Sometimes that happens. You might be able to think of people who've done things where you think, you claim to be a Christian, but that can't be the case because of this action. Second reason sometimes uh, we might be hurt by the church is we might be hurt by people who are Christians but not mature Christians. And so they haven't learnt some of the ways of Jesus. And I'm careful not to use the phrase new Christian because there are some new Christians who mature very quickly, and there are some very long-standing Christians who have barely matured at all. And so, you know, that's a thing, right? Uh, But sometimes we can end up being hurt because people just haven't had time to learn some of the ways in which are appropriate to behave in the church. Um, Alex um, has a brilliant analogy for it, and he says, "Um, just because your child wets the bed doesn't make you a family of bedwetters, Right? That's true, isn't it? So me and Nick are hoping to have a little baby boy in a month's time. He'll need to wear nappies, no doubt. But I wasn't planning on wearing nappies immediately. Anyway, that will come one day, no doubt, uh, but not immediately. Um, the point is that just because some people in the church haven't learnt some of the ways of Jesus doesn't mean the whole family haven't. And there are things that we can do together that maybe some of us individually haven't learnt yet. 
A third category, though, is probably the most problematic. And that is that sometimes we're hurt by people who um, sin against us in spite of being a mature Christian. People who should know better, but don't. And sometimes either knowingly or just because of bad decisions that have cascaded, people do things that are devastating in the church. I think of a person that I trained with at college who, um, you know, we like did prayer stuff together. She seemed to be doing really fantastically and like participated in loads of things. Um, just seemed to be doing really well as far as you could tell. A mature Christian, growing, like ready to be ordained in the Church of England. And then just a year ago, I learned that um, she was ordained and then she had an affair shortly after starting her um, trainee post as a curate. And she had an affair with the vicar of the church. Now that is absolutely devastating for that community. Right? They've lost their two leaders of the church kind of together effectively. It's also enormously damaging, destructive for two marriages. Now, I, d- I don't think that was because she was never a Christian at all. She just kind of blagged it all the way through theological college. I don't even think it was because she wasn't mature. I think it's just a reality that we need to be aware that all of us experience temptation and brokenness that still needs healing and restoration. And maybe those of us who consider ourselves to be mature Christians should be particularly wary and ready to be on our guard and live the ways of Jesus. Regardless of the different reasons um, that people might have experienced pain in the church, I guess the main thing that I wanted to say is today is basically if you have been hurt by the church, then I'm so sorry that that's happened. It shouldn't have happened. It shouldn't have. And I'm really sorry that the church didn't turn out to be as good as you'd hoped it would be or that it didn't turn out to be as much like Jesus as it was supposed to be. I'm really sorry that that happened. I can't promise that it won't happen again. Uh, The other thing I wanted to say is that if you're someone who feels frustrated by the church, because you feel like you're kind of going ahead of us, trying to drag us along, and we're just like slow and stubborn, I get it, basically. I get it. Good for you. And thanks for trying to help us progress like we bless you for that but you you need to be patient with us as well and you need to be patient with the church so how are we supposed to respond uh, to a frustrating church or a painful church Uh, well I think we're supposed to model the way of Jesus that holy discontent supposed to respond with honesty and hope so it's good to name things it's good to be honest basically and call things out, and spot it in ourselves as well, and be honest with ourselves when we're the problem. That's the fourth one that Alex didn't mention. Sometimes we're hurt because we're the problem. We need to be honest about that. But secondly, we need to maintain an attitude of hope. It's really painful thinking about these things, but it's important to invest them with hope. And so I picked a little passage that I wanted to just sort of finish with, It's from Romans, two passages from five and eight. And Paul says this, we know that suffering, that church hurt, if you want, 
produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And he goes on a couple of chapters later, he says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth or immoral church leaders or immature Christians or hard-hearted congregations, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. At the end of the Bible, there's a picture of the church as the bride of Christ. And it's a, it's a really beautiful picture of God's love for his people. And it's symbolized in a wedding between Jesus and us. And what that means is that right now, Jesus is engaged to the church, basically. And it seems to me that Jesus would only be willing to propose to the church if he had quite high hopes for it. He's, quite, he's a bit of a catch, Jesus, isn't he? He's quite an eligible bachelor. And so he presumably has quite high hopes for his fiance. He could be choosy. He chose the church. That means we could have high hopes for the church as well. And so as we come into land, I want to encourage you to have high hopes for us, to hold us to a high standard together. I want to encourage you to put aside denial or pessimism or indifference or perfectionism and to get in the game, basically, of helping us grow and develop so that together, collectively, we might play our part in the evangelization of the nation, the revitalization of the church, and the transformation of society. In Jesus' name, amen.